Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 48 through 59 today. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59. Give you a moment to turn there, give you a little context. Last Sunday we looked at Jesus' devastating rebuke of the Jews, the religious leaders. As descendants of Abraham, they did not see themselves as sinners, as spiritual slaves who needed to be set free by Jesus. They saw themselves as Abraham's children, which would mean that they were indeed the worthy recipients of God's salvation. It's almost as if being that because they came from Abraham's lineage, they were guaranteed to be saved and blessed. That personal salvation was not something that they needed to experience, that they had it at a national level. They were basically basing their eternal security and entire hope on the idea that they were Abraham's children. In other words, all of their stock for their eternity was put into Abraham, coming through his lineage. Jesus told them that they were not Abraham's children because they did not act like Abraham. The father-like son component was missing, if you want to look at it like that. They were indeed coming through the lineage of Abraham, but they were really more just his offspring and not his actual children. Abraham believed and obeyed God's word. But the Jews who were claiming to be his children rejected God's word, disobeyed God's word. And that's what made them unlike Abraham. Like I said, they were not like the father that they claimed to have. They were completely the opposite of him. Jesus basically told them, and I'm just kind of boiling down the whole section we looked at, your hatred of me and refusal to believe in me makes you children, not of Abraham, but of the devil. In this last section, Jesus strikes a final blow against their pride, against their descendancy, against their reliance on Abraham. This morning, we're going to look at five S's. And we're going to wrap up chapter 8 as well as the Feast of Booths narrative. We've actually been in the Feast of Booths narrative for two entire chapters, if you can believe it. That's what we've been looking at ever since we began chapter 7. And now we're wrapping all of that up. So I'd like to begin with the first S. I hope you're ready to take notes and to follow along. The first is the scoffing. The scoffing, we see this in verses 48 through 50. So this is the Jews responding to Jesus' harsh rebuke, His correction, Him literally telling these people who were the most religious people in the entire world that they were basically not rightly religious and not the children of Abraham. Here's how they respond to Jesus' massive correction. It says in 48, the Jews answered Him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? 
<laughs> this is Jesus they're speaking to. Uh, 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father. And he's speaking of God the Father. And he says, and you dishonor me. 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. We stop there. The Jews respond to Jesus' devastating rebuke by calling him a Samaritan. Why did they call him a Samaritan? What is a Samaritan? It almost sounds like a curse word or something here. It's actually a people group. He called them by the title or name of a people group. This is like uh, getting upset with somebody and calling them French. You Mexican, you French, you German, you whatever. Why did they call him a Samaritan? Why did they refer to him as an ethnic group? Well, the Samaritans are a people group and they live to the north. Their area in Palestine, if you want to call it that, is just above uh, where the Jews are at this point, just above Jerusalem and just above Galilee. So they lived up there, and they were a multi-ethnic group. Uh, you would almost think of them as being American, where American is a, a mix of different ethnicities. They were a multi-ethnic group, and really what they were was they were partly Jewish and partly everyone else. So they had some Jewish background and lineage to them, but they were also mixed in with a lot of other ethnicities from the area. And there was a major disagreement on the subject of descendancy between Samaritans and Jews. Both groups believed that they were the true descendants or children of Abraham. As I said, Samaritans had some roots in in, in, the, in the Jewish people, and so they thought that they were the true children of Abraham, which meant the children of promise and covenant, and then the Jews at the same time who were south of them thought the same thing. But each group denied the other's claims. The Samaritans would say, Jews, you are not truly from Abraham, and the Jews would say the same thing to the Samaritans. And, and this obviously resulted in a a bitter and even sometimes violent feud between both groups, both people groups. The Jews in our text felt that Jesus was using Samaritan tactics when He denied their descendancy. As I just said, that's what Samaritans did to the Jews. You're not really the true children of Abraham, we are. And they thought that's essentially what Jesus was doing, denying their descendancy, acting like a Samaritan. I like what MacArthur wrote here. The reference to Jesus as a Samaritan probably centers in the fact that the Samaritans, like Jesus, questioned the Jews' exclusive right to be called Abraham's children. And what the Jews failed to understand here when they're rebuking Jesus and calling him a Samaritan and saying he is a demon, what they failed to understand is that Jesus was not denying their physical descendancy. He wasn't denying the fact in this whole passage that we looked at last week. He wasn't denying the fact that they'd come through Abraham's lineage. Jesus knew that. 
their claims were true in a sense. That's not at all what he was denying. He was not denying their physical descendancy. He was denying their spiritual descendancy. You may have come through his blood, but you're nothing like him in terms of faith and religion. They were, as I said, indeed the physical offspring of Abraham. Jesus acknowledges this fact in verse 37. But the Jews had no right to claim that they were Abraham's children because Abraham's children follow Abraham's spiritual example and walk in his spiritual footsteps. You know, if, if the Jews had been Abraham's children in the spiritual sense, which is far more important than any sort of physical sense, if they had been from his spiritual bloodline, if you want to call it that, his religious background and his worship of God and obedience to the Word and all that, they would have been just like Abraham. They would have done what he did. They would have obeyed God's Word. They would have believed God's Word. They would have obeyed it and fulfilled it and done it. In other words, they wouldn't have rejected their own Messiah. So that's the first thing that we see here. They call him a Samaritan. And, and I think it's more than just the idea that Jesus is acting like a Samaritan by denying their descendancy. There's an insult in this because the Samaritans were the most despised people by the Jews. So if you pick a particular ethnicity that you despise, which means you're totally not even in the gospel at this point if you're racist like this, but it would be like they hated the Samaritans so much, that's why they referred to him as a Samaritan, not just because he's denying their descendants, but because they hate those people. They hate that race. They hate that ethnicity. So it's really twofold. And the Jews also scoffed at Jesus. That calling him a Samaritan, I don't think was really a scoff. Scoff meaning to sort of, yeah, right, buddy. They scoffed at him too when they said that he has a demon. Now, the word demon translates in many different ways. It, it could certainly refer to a literal demon, a fallen angel who is a demon and servant of Satan. It, it could be translated that way, but it also can mean insanity. Like, you have a demon, like, you're insane. You're crazy to say this about us and to deny our de uh, descendancy. So it can mean either thing. It can mean they're calling him nuts or they really think he has a demon. Now, this was return fire for Jesus' statement in verse 44. What did he say in verse 44? You are of your father, the devil. So the Jews basically flip it. When you deny our descendancy, you act like a Samaritan, a demon. In other words, the devil is not our father. He's your father. That's what they did here. Oh, you think that our father is the devil? Oh, I don't think so, dude. Your father is the devil. Who are the demons? They're under Satan's management. And so they're just... It's a tit-for-tat kind of situation here. They're returning fire and flipping Jesus' correction onto him. They're at least attempting to. Oh, he's not our father. He's your father. You're the one who's demonic. I like J.C. Ryle's paraphrase of Jesus' reply. He wrote, In saying that I have a devil, 
And this is if Jesus is speaking. In saying that I have a devil, you say that which is not true. I am simply honoring my Father in heaven by delivering his message to man and you, by your violent language and dishonoring me, and in effect dishonoring and insulting my Father. In other words, you insult me, you insult the one who sent me and the one whose message I bear. He says, Jesus is saying in essence here, your insults do not strike at me only, but at my Father also. That's something that we must come to understand, that any rejection of Jesus is essentially a rejection of God Himself. And yet there are countless religions that proclaim to declare to be worshiping God, and yet they deny Jesus, or they blaspheme Jesus, or they curse Jesus. And when you curse Jesus, you curse God the Father. You can't have one without the other. It's essentially what Jesus is saying. In verse 50, basically, Jesus tells them that their scoffing and insults have no effect on him because he did not come to seek his own glory. In John 5, 41, Jesus put it like this, I do not take glory from men. It's kind of incredible to think that here's Jesus who's God who steps out of heaven and becomes a a man to die for our sin and does all these amazing things that he actually did not come to be glorified. He did not come to receive glory. He came on a mission to save sinners. He did not come for the purpose of receiving glory. Which makes me wonder about the servants of God, more particularly a lot of pastors who are glory hogs. How can you claim to proclaim and teach and be following Jesus who did not come for his own glory, but that's what you're all about. You're all about your own glory and your own image and your own house and your own possessions and your own bank account. You see this today with the health and wealth movement and these sorts of things. To be pursuing your own glory is to be the antithesis to Christ because he didn't even come to pursue glory. He came... In humility, which means his followers and disciples should be what? Humble, not glory hogs. Those who seek to be exalted and glorified by men will get offended by men. Do I need to repeat that? Because you might be one who is constantly offended by what people do and say to you. It could be because you are so into yourself that any sort of insult is an attack on your person, on your image. This is just all pride. Those who seek to be exalted and glorified by men will get offended by men. In other words, Jesus didn't get offended by what they were saying. Why? Because he wasn't after his own glory. But those who seek to glorify God, those who seek to share in His glory, which is such an amazing gift of grace by Him, what? They will be disinterested in man's praise and let insults roll right off of them. Boy, if you're all about capturing the focus and attention and accolades and praises of men, you're going to be miserable because we cannot do that very well. 
We can do it once or twice, and then we blow it, and then you're like, I don't, he doesn't love me. But man, if, if, if you're all about God's glory, and, and, and you're living, literally, you're living your life for an audience of three, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, when people bring stuff against you, you're going to be like, whatever. I know it's really hard, though, especially when it's those who are closest to us. But for the most part, man, if you're all about getting men's glory, when man doesn't deliver, you're going to be destroyed. Jesus was literally impervious to verbal attacks because He did not value man's opinion. He was not hoping that man would do something or or say something nice about Him or who would acknowledge His good deeds. And, and, and just quickly forgive whatever else or whatever. He was impervious to verbal attack. He wasn't impervious to physical attack because he came to lay down his life. He allowed himself to be arrested and pulverized and beaten to death and put on a cross. But verbal attacks had no impact on him at all because he didn't care about what men think about him. He just did his thing. He came to do his thing. He had tunnel vision. I've come to serve the Father and bring Him glory. I've come to buy my church. (laughs) Whatever. They call Him a Samaritan. He doesn't even tell them, I'm not a Samaritan. That would be like insulting the Samaritan people. You're right, I'm not a Samaritan. I'm not French. I've had people tell me that because I'm French. It's a pretty deep insult if you think about it. Being French, not the best thing. But through Christ, I've learned to not care. He was impervious to verbal attack because he wasn't after man's praises and opinions. He did not come to seek to be glorified by men. He knew that the Father would soon glorify him. And he knew that the Father would also vindicate him. You see, all of those insults that came at Jesus and the murder of Him and the slaughter of Him, that would be paid for at some point by the people who did those things. (laughs) There is a vindication that comes. Even though you might get good at letting stuff roll off of you, God is just. He'll deal with people. He vindicates His people. Despite their scoffing, Jesus... This is just... This is where I depart from being like Jesus. Despite their scoffing, Jesus still invites the Jews to participate in His saving grace. Is that our first response when people are all over us like a cheap suit? By the way, brother, you need to receive the Lord. No, we're like the sons of thunder trying to call down fire on their entire household. Can you bomb them? Can you lay siege to their house? He invites them to participate in His saving grace. We see this in number 2, the surety, verse 51. This is like, okay, this is where I realize I'm so not like Jesus at times. And I, I totally want to be like Him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. What he said here is so foreign to humanity because the way that humanity responds to being called a Samaritan and saying you have a demon is to fight fire with fire. 
And Jesus is reminding them of the insane mercy-based benefit they receive if they put their faith in Him. They will never, ever see death. What a response to these hateful, vengeful, nasty, nasty men. And, of course, we begin at 51 there. We see the double truly, right? You see it, truly, truly. What does that signify? It signifies that the following statement, whatever Jesus says right after that, is of highest importance. I tell you the truth, I tell you the truth. Jesus then issues a sure promise. Anyone who keeps his word will never see death. J.C. Ryle's paraphrase of this statement is really good. He says, this is Jesus again speaking, whether you will hear or not, whether you choose to know me or not, I solemnly tell you that if any man receives, believes, and keeps my doctrine, he shall never see death. Now, Keeping his word, because that's what Jesus instructs these guys to do. They're calling him names. They're saying he's demon-possessed. He's telling them to keep his word. And keeping the word means to receive it into the heart, into the center of who you are. It means to believe. It means to embrace. It means to obey. It means to hold fast the doctrine or message which Jesus is commissioned to preach. In other words, it means believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus came to live a perfect life for you, die on the cross to pay for your sin, be buried to settle your account, rise from the grave, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. If we believe the gospel, we will never die. That's what he's telling them. If you believe what I've been teaching you, what I've been saying, you'll be delivered. Earlier he called them slaves to sin and he said, I can set you free, but you must believe in me. The expression, never see death, should not be taken literally. Jesus did not mean that his disciples or those who were there and listening, he did not mean that they would, you know, that they would not die and be buried physically. You will die and be buried physically. But Ryle again comments, he says, never see death means three things. A, this is what Jesus means. Believers shall be completely delivered from that spiritual death of condemnation under which all mankind are born. His soul is alive and can die no more. So obviously what Ryle's onto here is Jesus is talking about spiritual life and death here. He's not talking about physical death. Our bodies are going to fail. We are going to go into a grave at some point. And if you're in Christ, your soul goes to be with Jesus. And at some point, you're going to get what Mike was reading about earlier, a new body. Your soul's going to be rejoined to a new physical body that's glorified. You're a whole person again. You're who God created you to be in the very beginning before the fall. Even better than that. There is a complete deliverance from spiritual death. And spiritual death is a very real thing. It occurs when we remain in rebellion, we do not believe, we do not repent, and we physically die. Then our soul, our spirit, experiences spiritual death. What is spiritual death? I defined it a couple of weeks ago. It is, is it separation from God, as many will tell you? It can't be. God is omnipresent, which means everywhere. It can't be 
separation from his presence. It doesn't mean that. It means separation from his good side. Separation from his common grace. Separation from his mercy. Separation from his light that reveals truth that can save. You are separated from that. And you are in the presence of God in all his wrath and justice. He is saying you will not taste or experience that kind of death. B, believers shall be delivered from the sting of bodily death. His flesh and bones may sink under disease and be laid in the grave, but the worst part of death shall not be able to touch him, and the grave itself shall give him up one day. This is what Mike was reading about. The sting of death is to be put in a tomb to rot and remain there forever while your soul goes off to a punishment. And to not taste death here, it, it certainly has to do with not remaining physically dead in a tomb. That your body will be made new and brought out of that tomb at the resurrection and return of Christ and joined with your soul. That's what he's talking about. See, believers shall be delivered entirely from what the Bible calls the second death. This is eternal punishment in hell, you can read about it in Revelation chapter 20 where everyone is resurrected, all of the unbelievers are resurrected and given a new body and then these new bodies are joined with the soul and the whole person that's a brand new person, not for glory, but for eternal punishment is cast into the lake of fire, a.k.a. hell for eternal punishment. The second death that we see in Scripture, it's not something that those who believe in Jesus experience. We're not even there for that judgment the great white throne judgment. This idea of never seeing death is so comprehensive. It means not staying physically dead in a tomb. It means not experiencing second death. It means being delivered from spiritual death, which is far more important than physical death. To go from being a physical being with a soul and then having that soul departed from the body and then going off into Hades until the day of judgment and then to hell to be joined with a physical body. It's just horrendous what unbelievers are going to experience. And yet people scoff at it and laugh at it and they would say of me, he has a demon. Phil's a French. He's a Frenchy. Well, I'm just telling you what the Scripture says. I don't make this stuff up. It's, it's what's here. So that's the surety. If you believe in Jesus you can be sure that you will be delivered from death, spiritual and even physical at the resurrection. It's amazing to me that he is telling these men who hate him and want to kill him and are cursing him and blaspheming him and calling him names, saying he's possessed. It's amazing to me that he still extends this invitation to them. It's incredible. Number three, number three is the stupefaction. Verses 52 through 53, somebody snickered because they're like, what does that mean? I'll tell you. Well, you've heard of the word stupefied, right? Stupefaction is to be in a state of stupefaction. Just to be, <laughs> you're like, what the heck does that mean? Does it mean stupid? Yes, stop right there. Kind of. 
the Jews said to him, now here's their response again to Jesus. He invites them to believe and to be delivered from death, right? What an awesome invitation. You'd think that they would respond more positively, but look at 52. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Okay? And he says, they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? What? And they say in verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Are you greater than all of them? And then they say, who do you make yourself out to be? And this is our way of saying, who do you think you are, pal? The Jews were utterly stupefied, amazed, okay? Amazed begins with an A. It didn't work in the S thing I have here. That's why I had to look, you know, and I had to find an equivalent, right, so I could maintain the whole S flow, right? I, I knew as soon as I said the word. Uh, they were utterly stupefied. They were completely blown away. They were totally amazed by Jesus' statement. Amazed not in a, wow, that's really cool way, but like, yeah, seriously? Like it just shot off their head. They thought Jesus was boasting. They thought he was bragging right here. It was as if they had said, Abraham and the prophets, as good as they were, all died physically. But you say, if people keep your word, if they believe in you, they will never taste death? You must think you're greater than Abraham and the prophets. Now we know you're possessed by a demon. We know that you are crazy. That's what they're saying in effect. Now, <laughs> it's a side note, but I think it's worth mentioning. Take, take a look at, oh, let's see, where is it at? Take a look at the middle of 53. What does it say? And the prophets died. Very innocent statement. Now, prophets referring to Israel's prophets throughout all of the Old Testament. An interesting kind of harmless statement, right? You know, and, and the prophets died. What, do you think you're better than them? The prophets died. Abraham died. What do you think? Do you know how the prophets died? These balloon heads killed them. The, the prophets didn't die of natural causes. They were murdered by their own people. One was put in a tree and sawed in half. Isaiah, the greatest prophet. And they died. Jesus should have said, don't you mean when you killed them? That's not what we're talking about right now, Jesus. We're focused on you. <laughs> they killed their own prophets. They murdered their own prophets. They literally killed them all. I mean, there was a few of them that were taken away and one that went up in a chariot of fire and all that. But for the most part, they pretty much killed all of their prophets. When their prophets came with God's message of repentance and believe in the Messiah to come and turn away from your idols? How did the people respond in every scenario? They cursed them. They killed them. They always rejected and killed their own prophets. If you don't believe me, read Matthew 23, 31. Read Luke 13, 34. And what were they attempting to do here? Repeat the past by killing the prophet with a capital P. The prophet of prophets. You see the pattern? 
Oh, they died. No, you killed them, and you want to kill me. Years ago, a, um, a controversial and even questionable Christian author, I won't name him, I'm not even sure if he's a Christian, but he, he was, it was hard to tell back then. He said things that were just spot on and then things that were like, okay, wow, whoo, what have you been smoking, pal? But he wrote a book, and, and I didn't even, I read part of the book and I thought it was dumb, but I love the title of the book. The title of the book is Adventures and Missing the Point. Like everywhere you go, I don't get it, Uh, I don't get it. Uh, This is precisely what the Jews are doing right here. Adventures in missing the point. This title totally accurately describes the Jews here. Adventures in missing the point because the Jews kept missing Jesus' point over and over and over. Again, he was not referring to their to a you know, literal physical life. This is why they were stupefied. They were thinking, what? what are you talking about? Physical life, physical life? No, he was referring to spiritual life. In fact, I'm not sure Jesus referred much to physical life, our physical lives. He always dealt with the spiritual, which is far more important. He's not talking about, if you believe in me, your physical body will never die. That's not what Jesus has been teaching them. He is referring to spiritual life. If they kept his word, believed the gospel, they would never taste spiritual death, which is what? Synonymous with eternal death, separation from God's common grace, mercy, light in hell. Now, the questions in verse 53, these are the questions coming from the Jews. They show that Jesus had succeeded in arousing the curiosity of these guys stirring them to inquire about his nature and person, right? Look at the couple of questions they asked. Are you greater than our father Abraham? Now, this is, I think, semi-sarcastic here. It's a scoff, but I think they're legitimately questioning him, like, everything that you're saying makes you sound greater than him. Are you greater than Abraham? And there's only one other person who can match Abraham in, in terms of focus and adoration from the Jews, and that's Moses. Firstly, Abraham, then Moses, because Abraham came way before Moses. That's the first question. Are you greater than our father Abraham? We really want to know. And then, who do you make yourself out to be? If you're saying that you're greater than than the prophets in Abraham, and, and, and Moses was considered a prophet, all of them, then who are you? John Chrysostom observes, the question of the Jews reminds us of the Samaritan woman's question in John 4.12, are you greater than our father Jacob? Do you remember way back when we were in that section and she asked that question? What they're doing here is very similar. And Jesus' answer is, is just spectacular. It's incredible. Let's move to number four, the superiority. Verses 54 through 58, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you have not known Him. I know Him. 
If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. (laughs) Jesus has got to get his little dig in there. I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 57, so the Jews said to him, you're not, you are not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What a response. Let's unpack it. Let's unpack it. We could easily just take this entire paragraph and Jesus' answer to them to the question, are you greater than Abraham? We could totally boil it down and say, Jesus said, yes. And we could just move on and go get Mexican food or French food or Samaritan food. No, we're going to analyze it. In these five verses, I have identified four ways that Jesus is totally and absolutely superior to Abraham, to the prophets, and to everyone else. It's not just that he's greater than them. He's greater than all. Four ways I see here. A, he has more glory. Verse 54, it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. He has more glory than Abraham the prophets, anyone else. Abraham the prophets and and literally all believers, all who have put their faith in Christ, will all share in God's glory. It's part of our salvation. Part of our salvation and maybe the main thrust of our salvation is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And who is Christ? Most glorious. So every believer shares in His glory. Every believer, Abraham, the prophets, Moses, everyone, even you if you're in Christ, you will share in God's glory. But no person will ever be as glorious as Jesus. Who is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realm? Jesus. That is the place of high glory. You and I are not going to sit on a throne up there. In fact, if we receive a crown for our service to the Lord, we're going to cast it at His feet, I think. We had a great conversation about this in our men's study the other day. Who is the sovereign Lord over all creation? Jesus! Ephesians 1, 20 through 21. He is the sovereign Lord over all creation. All things were made through Him, to Him, for Him, by Him. All things redound for His glory. It all exists for Jesus. Who is the head of the church? The Pope? The Pope isn't the head. He's the head of a serpent. It is Jesus. Colossians 1.18, I can't stand Catholicism, I love Catholics, but I can't stand it that they've erected a man to be equivalent to Christ. It's blasphemy. He is the head of the church in heaven and on earth. He has not appointed someone to be the head of the church on earth. He is the head of the church on earth. These high positions, these 
highest positions illustrate his high glory and set his glory apart from Abraham, apart from the prophets, apart from everyone else. His glory is divine. His glory is equal to that of the Father, equal to that of the Holy Spirit. He may not have come in glory, but he left in glory. He now resides in glory. He shall return in glory, and he shall reign in glory forevermore. Getting fired up? <laughs> Getting pumped. Feel like George Costanza. Getting hot. Look, the way that you worship the Lord, that's between you and the Lord and the way that you do it, it, it's your way of doing it. The way I do it is I get fired up. I don't mean to be offensive or loud or obnoxious, but if the glory of Christ doesn't excite you, you're probably dead. He has more glory than anyone else. Do you believe it? Yes. Yes. B, he knows God and keeps his word. Verse 55, Jesus says, I know him. He's speaking of the Father. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, speaking to the Jews. But I do know him and I keep his word. Now, the Jews claim to be children of God, not just children of Abraham. If you look at the previous section, they claim to be children of God. But in reality, they didn't know God. All of their religion, all of their effort, everything that they were doing did not connect them to God. Religion will never connect us to God. Only the Holy Spirit can connect us to God. They did not know God, even though they claimed to be God's children. Their disobedience, their rejection of God's Son, Jesus Christ, proved that they did not know God, right? We said it earlier, you, you can't deny Jesus and know God. The only way to know God, the true living God, the Father, is through Jesus. There's no other way. They did not know God, and the evidence of that is their disobedience and rejection of Jesus, God's Son. It proved it. But Jesus knows God. He came from God. John 3.17, 8.42, 12.44, If you want these references, good luck. Maybe you can go back and re-listen to this. He came from God. He is loved by God. Matthew 3.17, Matthew 17.5, Mark 9.7, Luke 3.22. And guess what? He is God. Isaiah 9.6, John 1.1, 1, 1, Romans 9.5, Hebrews 1.8, Titus 2.13, 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus actually declares His deity very boldly and emphatically in verse 58. We'll get there. As a man 
Jesus is not, right? Because we're talking about the incarnation now when God became a man and Jesus lived as a man. As a man, Jesus' knowledge of God was superior to that of Abraham, the prophets, and all others. Why? Because his mind was untainted by sin. His understanding was perfect. Jesus wasn't a sinner like us. Therefore, his view of God was not corrupted. There was no selfish motive behind it or any of that kind of stuff that we have to deal with. Even as a man, his knowledge of God was superior to ours. Not only does Jesus know God, he loves God. And he expresses it through obedience. Or as he put it, I keep his word. Abraham and the, and the prophets were no doubt great men, but they weren't perfect. Even though the Jews had exalted them up to the level of perfection, they were not perfect. They were great men. They were great men of God, but they were not perfect. At times they disobeyed God's word. At times they disobeyed God's commands. On two occasions, Abraham bore false witness by lying to foreign kings about his wife, Sarah. He didn't trust the Lord. He was filled with fear, a sense of fear, and he started lying to kings. Genesis 12, 13, Genesis 20, 20. On another occasion, he slept with an Egyptian woman to try to produce a male heir for his estate, despite the fact that God had already promised him one through Sarah, his wife. We, we think of Abraham as just being this great man of God and all that. We rarely think of him as being a sinner like us. He was! Now, he didn't have the Mosaic law. It came later, but he still had God's commands, and God still gave him commands to do and things to fulfill and called him to be obedient to his word and all that. And guess what? He blew it like we do. The greatest Old Testament prophet, Isaiah, called himself a man of unclean lips. Isaiah 6, 5. A man of unclean lips. A man, a man who says things he ought not to say. I am a man of unclean lips at times. I feel the shame of it. Jonah, the, the prophet whom God sent to Nineveh, you, you've heard of him? The guy who was swallowed by a big fish, and everyone's like, that can't even happen. You've never seen Jaws? <laughs> it can happen. Jonah, the prophet whom God sent to Nineveh, deliberately disobeyed God's instructions, got on another boat, and went in the opposite direction of Nineveh. Jonah 1.3, after entering Nineveh and warning the Assyrians about God's wrath, the people begin to repent in droves. There is a revival that breaks out among the Assyrian people. This is when the Assyrians had a nation, and, and this incredible revival breaks out, and it's just unreal. All these people are getting saved and repenting. They don't want to be judged by God, and they don't want to experience His wrath, and it's happening. This is a preacher's dream. And instead of celebrating and worshiping God, he gets angry and throws a hissy fit. Jonah 4.1. He couldn't stand the fact that these crazy, unbelieving, nutso, pagan worshipers were getting saved. It offended him. He was probably filled with a sense of self-righteousness and like, hey, you're supposed to save people like me, not them. Which clearly shows that he did not understand the gospel because Jesus didn't come for those who were well. And came for Samaritans. I could give you a lot of examples. But the point is, none of them were able to keep God's law 
obey perfectly. Jesus alone has done this. He never disobeyed God's word, even though he was tempted in every imaginable way. He wasn't like Jonah. He wasn't the sense that he was a prophet, but not in the sense that he disobeyed God. He was like Isaiah, only in the sense that he was a prophet. But Jesus was not a man of unclean lips. He was like Abraham. He went where God told him to go, but he never lied. His perfect obedience is now the basis of our righteousness. If we believe in Him, He takes our sin and He gives us His righteousness. It is what we call the great exchange. A simpler point that Jesus is making here is that those who truly know God keep His Word. Really, that's what Jesus is trying to convey to them. You claim to know God, but you don't keep His Word, so you don't know Him. Remember, like Father, like Son person who claims to know God and simultaneously disobeys His Word at every opportunity they get proves to be a liar, verse 55. And this is what the Jews were doing. See, He is the promised Messiah, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In this verse, Jesus takes up the question of the Jews as to his being greater than Abraham, and he boldly gives an answer. It was as if he had said, you ask me whether I am greater than Abraham? I tell you that I am he whose coming and whose day of glory Abraham rejoiced to think he should see. Moreover, by faith he saw it, and when he saw it, he was glad. In other words... Abraham lived long before Jesus, but Abraham believed in the Messiah to come. And by faith, he looked forward and seeing that day coming and imagined that day coming, and he was glad that that day would come. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, it must have come as quite a shock to the Jews to hear that their own father, Abraham, eagerly anticipated and joyfully looked forward to the day when Jesus, the Messiah, would come to redeem his people. Jesus clearly, right here in this text, He clearly presents Himself as the hope of Abraham, which makes Him what? Superior to Abraham. The object of hope is greater than the one who hopes. The object of hope is what the hopeful person focuses on, trusts in, and waits for. The Jews had it backwards. They were hoping in Abraham. <laughs> they should have been hoping in Jesus like their father. And the Jews had a, a major, major advantage over Abraham as well. Every generation desired for Messiah to come in their day. All the Jewish people were waiting for that. Man, I, I, I know he's coming, but if he could just come in our day, that would just take it to another level. That would be the ultimate blessing. They're still waiting for it now. He already came. He's coming again. Every generation desired for Messiah to come in their day. But Messiah didn't come during Abraham's day. 
Nor did he come during the days of the Old Testament prophets. He came in this day and he was standing before them. What an advantage they had. What a blessing. They're interacting with the Messiah they were allegedly waiting for. The one whom Abraham was looking to by faith. He's there in the temple court. And yet the Jews failed to recognize him. Talk about a missed opportunity. He is the promised Messiah. D, he is I am. Verse 58, truly, truly I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Now this is the second double truly in this section. What does this mean? Following statement is of highest importance. He then tells them that he existed before Abraham as I am. What does I am translate? As In Hebrew, it translates as Yahweh. What or who is Yahweh? Yahweh is one of God's titles. It means Lord, and more particularly, Lord of the Old Testament. Jesus declared Himself to be the eternally pre-existent God who revealed Himself in the Old Testament to the Jews, to the Jewish people, as their sovereign Lord. Think of it like this. Jesus is superior to Abraham, to the prophets, and to everyone else because He is before Abraham, the eternally preexistent God, and He is above Abraham, sovereign Lord over all. I am. That's what Jesus is saying. It's precisely what He has said. He just declared His deity, His preexistence, His eternality, all of it. He just said to them, are you greater than Abraham? I am God. Yes. Infinitely greater. Did the Jews understand Jesus' claims? Yes. Yes, they understood exactly what He was saying. Did they finally, finally believe in Him as Lord and Savior? No. Look at our last S. The stoning, verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The Jews picked up stones to hurl at Jesus, to kill him. They thought he was blaspheming. There's a text in Leviticus that says that if anyone claims to be God, you must kill him. And here they we're trying to obey that scripture, thinking that Jesus is blaspheming. And this is after almost, this is after two and a half years of performing miracles and doing things that only God could do, proving or showing them in every conceivable way that he is God, bearing testimony about his deity, which he just did here. I mean, he gave them every evidence and every proof that he is God. And then when he claims it boldly here, they try to do the old Leviticus passage and kill him. But before they could even launch one stone at him, he hid himself and went out of the temple. He tried to kill him. MacArthur suggests that this was a supernatural escape, like Jesus suddenly disappeared. Could be. We don't know for sure how it went down. What we do know is that Jesus was being sovereignly protected and no one, no one was able to lay a finger on Him until His hour had come. 
And we saw, we see in the book of John several attempts to capture and kill Jesus, but to no avail because His hour had not yet come. And that's exactly what applies here. Ten weeks ago, I told you that the Feast of Booths narrative opens with high-intensity hatred of Jesus and attempted murder. Do you remember that back in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2? How does the Feast of Booths narrative end? High-intensity hatred and attempted murder. Chapter 8, verse 59. Closing. How is Jesus superior to Abraham, to the prophets, and to everyone else? He has more glory. He is most glorious. He has the glory, the shared glory of the Father and the Spirit. He has divine glory. He is seated at the right hand, proving His glory. He is the head of the church, proving His glory. How dare anyone set up some man on earth to take glory from the head Christ? How dare they? He has more glory, more glory. He is most glorious. He knows God and keeps His word. You see, Jesus knows God in a way that we will never know God because He is God. God knows God best. Even as a man, meaning like us in a sense, He knew God better than we do because He was without sin. He didn't have anything corrupting His view of God, His understanding of God, His knowledge of God. And He kept His word. He kept His word. This is how you prove to know God. You believe in Jesus and you keep His word. You obey not perfectly, but you do it. He keeps His Word. I'm so glad He kept His Word. I'm so glad that He obeyed the Father's commands and the law of Moses and all of that in a bag of chips. I'm so glad He did it. He did it all. He obeyed it all because that becomes the source of our righteousness. He obeyed what we cannot obey and earned righteousness for us. And He freely gives it to us and takes our sin when we believe. What an exchange. Aren't you glad? He kept the Father's word perfectly. You put your faith in Abraham, you're in a lot of trouble. The only righteousness he had was the righteousness of the Messiah to come, Jesus Christ, because Abraham believed. Jesus is greater than them because he is the promised Messiah. He has already come. The first advent has happened. The second advent will happen soon, I hope. He is the Messiah. He is the only one who can save us. He is the only one. There is no other name under heaven by which men shall be saved but the name of Jesus. Even Abraham looked forward to the day that he would come. And Jesus didn't come in Abraham's day. He certainly hoped that would happen, but it didn't. And it came... And the day that we've been looking at here and studying, and yet these men rejected Him. What if Jesus had come during Abraham's day? Would Abraham would have rejected Him? Would He have done that? No. He would not have rejected Him. He would have received Him and with all joy, with all humility. How else is He greater? He is, I am. He is Yahweh. 
He is the Lord of the Old Testament, the Lord of the universe. He is God. The question is, how do you respond to Jesus' claims? Do you believe Him? Do you get angry? Some of you are thinking, oh, heavens no. Have you ever seen someone get angry at Jesus' claims? Angry at you for claiming Jesus' claims? Are we not looking at the Jews in here explode and try to throw rocks at Him? I have seen people get ticked off at a lot of things, but I have never seen people get more hateful and ugly at the claims of Jesus. At the claims of Jesus. Do you believe Him by faith? Do you get angry? Are you indifferent? Like what He says doesn't matter to you. There's a great number of people in that camp. It's irrelevant. Oh, it is most relevant, friend. Jesus' claims always elicit a response from people. The question is, what is our response? Is it belief, hatred, or indifference? I don't care. Belief in Jesus leads to eternal life. Hatred of Jesus and indifference toward Jesus leads to eternal death. Don't be like those Jews, those religious leaders. Don't let your heart become filled with hatred at His claims. Don't let your heart become filled with indifference and I don't care attitude because it doesn't matter to me. It is the most important issue of your life. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Today is the day of salvation, friend. If you are already a believer, be encouraged by Jesus' claims. His claims are truth. And the truth sets us free. And the truth enables us to walk in the freedom that Christ has secured for us through His bloody death, sacrifice, burial, and resurrection even through His life where we get that righteousness. Truth also strengthens us. It builds our faith and it renews our hope. Amen.